me walk you through what's happened in the last couple of days, okay? Um, the vice president and I and Chuck Schumer met on Saturday, okay? We gave them our most recent offer. We were at five. On Saturday afternoon, we sat down with Mr. Schumer and gave him a number below five. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, what I'm not going to tell you what... Did, what did, did I just say what... I wasn't going to tell you what the number was? Look, he wants border security. He wants to be able to have the resources and the tools that are needed that CBP and Department of Homeland Security have laid out that they have to have. You just got one of the biggest pay raises you've ever received, unless you don't want it. You haven't gotten one in more than 10 years. And we got you a big one. I got you a big one. Hello, I'm Leon Krause from Los Angeles, California. Welcome once again to Trumpcast and have a happy new year. I know we've said this many times in the last couple of years, but these are truly strange times in America. Christmas came and went with President Trump sitting all alone, or so he says, in the White House, waiting for Democrats in Congress to agree to a deal and give in to his obsession, his precious, his border wall. I don't know about you, but when I read the President's tweets on the morning of December the 24th, I immediately thought of Ebenezer Scrooge. I thought of Trump pacing the halls of the White House, haunted by the burden of history and scared of what the immediate future might bring. Even if he doesn't seem to be particularly introspective, the weight, the sheer weight of the office has to bear on him at times. If the famous Christmas ghosts did visit Trump these days, the ghost of Christmas future likely didn't offer him much reason to celebrate because he faces a very complicated 2019 The fight over the budget will probably prove symptomatic of future gridlock in Washington. Robert Mueller will soon unveil the true breadth of his findings. And by early summer, the race towards 2020 will begin in earnest. The Democratic Party and its voters will face the most important and complicated primary process in its modern history. And I don't think this is an exaggeration at all. If Trump escapes the Mueller probe unharmed and runs for re-election, Democratic voters will have to choose wisely from a wide field of candidates The president might be unpopular, but his defeat is far from certain, especially if the opposition fails to choose the right person to counter Trump's narrative. There are at least 20, 20 relevant political figures who are or will be actively seeking that presidential nomination of the Democratic Party. They come from every segment of the Democratic political spectrum, from almost every region of the United States and from almost every demographic imaginable. Senators, congressmen, mayors, former mayors, businessmen, governors, former governors. The list is too long. At some point during the second half of the year, that list will have to have fewer, far fewer names on it. And then Democratic voters will have to decide what kind of candidate they want, not only as the ideal standard bearer in the age of Trump, but also the man or woman more capable of beating the president 20 months from now. Some might say that to have a conversation about the democratic field as 2018 wraps up is rather meaningless since, to quote Donald Rumsfeld, I'm sorry for doing that, but to quote Donald Rumsfeld, so many unknown unknowns still await us. But the thing is, the fight within the Democratic Party is about far more than just an election. What's at stake is the identity of the party for at least a decade and perhaps even longer than that. The enduring influence of Bernie Sanders and a new wave of young progressives is on an unavoidable collision course with the party's centrist wing, even more so than before. Some describe this battle as a struggle between insurgent and establishment Democrats. However you choose to call it, both groups have powerful voices in this fight and both groups will want one of its own at the top of the ticket in November 2020. It's going to be a hell of a fight.
We will talk about the year ahead for the Democratic Party when we return. But first, the tweets. I'm all alone. Poor me. In the White House, waiting for the Democrats to come back and make a deal on desperately needed border security. At some point, the Democrats not wanting to make a deal will cost our country more money than the border wall we are all talking about. Crazy. Saudi Arabia has now agreed to spend the necessary money needed to rebuild Syria. Instead of the United States. See, isn't it nice when immensely wealthy countries help rebuild their neighbors rather than a great country, the U.S., that is 5,000 miles away, thanks to Saudi A. The wall is different than the $25 billion in border security. The complete wall will be built with the shutdown money plus funds already in hand. The reporting has been inaccurate on the point. The problem is, without the wall, much of the rest of dollars are wasted. We are substantially subsidizing the militaries of many very rich countries all over the world, while at the same time, these countries take total advantage of the U.S and our taxpayers on trade. General Mattis did not see this as a problem. I do. And it is being fixed. Scott Detrow is a congressional correspondent for NPR. He also co-hosts the NPR Politics Podcast. Scott, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So let me begin with a broad question. What's at stake for the Democratic Party in the next year and a half as the party chooses a candidate to face Donald Trump? Oh, a whole lot. I mean, all the existential questions that the Democrats faced on the midterms and mostly came out with on the positive side from their point of view, you know, times 100. This is a party that still is shocked that it lost in 2016, has never settled on the exact reason why it lost in 2016, that thinks that not only should Donald Trump never have been elected president, but is by and large horrified at every direction he's taken the country since he's become president. So the question for the Democrats is what strategy gets them back into the White House? And if Donald Trump won a second term to the Democrats, that is the worst possible thing because that would just entrench all the policies that he's put in place since he took power. So it's a very high stakes situation for Democrats. But at the same time, I think Democrats feel optimistic about their chances. And those two reasons are why you're seeing this record field form where we're talking about, you know, like maybe upwards of 20 candidates running for president. Do you agree with those who frame the 2020 primaries as a struggle between centrists and progressive? I think that's a major element. I don't know if it would be the defining term. Uh, for me, I think the, the the bigger division is the Washington candidates and the, and the non-Washington candidates. And that by and large probably tracks with the liberal versus centrist divide. But you're going to see a lot of candidates who are not based in Washington right now running as, you know, I'm. this is a governing style. I can bring people together, but it's more about the nuts and bolts of running things and whether that's a big company or whether that's a state compared to the, I think we're talking not quite a third of the Senate, but a significant chunk of the Senate to the point where Republicans have pointed out that Chuck Schumer is going to have a hard time finding all the votes he needs at key votes when so much of his caucus is campaigning for president. 
and the senators running are by and large going to be the more progressive, focusing on picking fights with the president, standing up for progressive causes, contrast style campaigning. So it's insurgent versus establishment Democrats. In a way, yeah, in a way, except interestingly, it's the more establishment candidates, the name brands who are kind of taking that insurgent populist fighter role, thinking about the way that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris have conducted themselves in the Senate. We used to say that the party's establishment ultimately decides on its nominee. The party decides. That wasn't the case with Republicans, and it almost wasn't the case with Democrats the last time around. Who will decide in 2020? That is a great point. And you've seen just both parties get weaker and weaker every election cycle. That's less a commentary on how the parties conducted themselves, though the Democratic National Committee certainly made a lot of enemies in 2016, but more just the reality of modern politics, right? The organizing and the fundraising that the party has so long taken a key role on has by and large been outsourced to the internet. It's less about getting together massive mega donors and more about tapping into having a massive email list where you rack up money through $100, $200 donations, the Beto O'Rourke model. The central parties have less and less of a role, and, and, and by and large, it's more about overseeing the delegate process, overseeing the debate schedule, the nuts and bolts of timeline of a campaign, and less about choosing sides. In 2016, the Republican Party lacked a clear leader. In 2020, the case is basically the same for the Democratic Party. I cannot see a very clear leadership figure. President Obama sometimes approaches that role, especially lately, but there's no clear leader in the Democratic Party. How will that affect the process? You know, I think a lot of people worry about that, but I think that if you look at the history of the Democratic Party, it's been those wide open elections that more often than not lead to successes for the Democrats. Like, go through the years where there was a clear leader and there was a likely nominee who ended up getting the election. Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. John Kerry, Al Gore, you know? What do those folks have in common? None of them became president. It was the wide-open primaries like Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, and all the people that we forget about running that year, too. That primary drags out, and the party really figures out its vision and figures out who it wants to be over the course of the primary season. That's worked well for the Democrats in the past. Bill Clinton coming out of nowhere to become president in 1992. Of course, that might be the more optimistic view of things. At the same time, those primaries can be messy processes that really heighten fights. And the Democratic Party is still trying to get over to a little bit of an extent the 2016 divide between the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton supporters. So there's a danger of it being negative. But I think a lot of Democrats say, hey, the best possible thing we can have is a year and a half of debating who this party is and who should lead it. Do you think that helped or hurt the Democratic Party last time around, having Sanders versus Clinton debating time and time again and eroding their mutual support? Well, Clinton didn't didn't win in the end, so I guess you could argue it hurt. I think what hurt the party more was the Democratic National Committee and so many key figures in the party thinking before the primary even started that Hillary Clinton was likely going to be the nominee and acting that way. And that's Mm -hmm. why uh, Tom Perez and the other people leading the Democratic Party this time around are saying, we're making a point to not even have conversations with these campaigns once the actual campaigns begins. We are trying to deal with this like an honest broker and set the ground rules and not favor one candidate going in. And I mean, there's so many candidates running and big names running or likely running that it would be hard for the Democratic establishment to, to pick a favorite anyway at this point in time, even if they wanted to. You hinted at this in the very beginning, but how did Trump change the game? Is there a before and after Trump when it comes to the way primary campaigns are run? Sure. I mean, I think you've seen a lot of people saying, oh, well, Trump didn't do X. Trump didn't do Y. 
why do you need to do that to be president? I don't think anyone should really model a campaign on, on the way that Donald Trump won the White House. That seemed like a once-in-a-lifetime event in terms of the things that went his way and the choices that he made that ended up paying off for him you know, in getting to the White House. One way is I've heard a lot of people talk about the idea of authenticity, saying that that Democratic candidates need to make sure they're being authentic, that they're not coming across like people reading canned focus group lines. Uh, you know, one, one thing that I think Donald Trump did do very successfully is he was certainly authentic. And a lot of people didn't like that authenticity. But if you looked at him on the debate stage with all the other Republicans, a lot of them did come across like almost robotic and repeating the same points over and over. You remember how Marco Rubio did that over and over again in that last debate before the New Hampshire primary and hurt his chances. Mm -hmm. Well, Trump was just being some sort of version of himself and not really caring what people thought. I think that's one of the few aspects of Donald Trump that Democrats seem to mirror I mean, I don't think that means they're going to be out there insulting their opponents the way that Trump did, but just trying to let loose a little bit more than they did before. I think that's one way. In terms of the technical side of campaigning, Donald Trump didn't run television ads until the very end. He didn't have the typical organizing structure that you saw in a campaign. So I'm curious to see whether once these campaigns get up and running, they think about maybe not doing as much traditional advertising as they did in the past, things like that. So let's get into the long list of candidates. So the list right now, more than a year from Iowa, is truly yeah. very long. I counted at least 20, let's say 20 relevant figures potentially vying for this nomination. How do you explain just the sheer size of the field? Let's start with the size. Yeah, well, we should say that at this point, there aren't that many official candidates. A lot of people are taking all the steps that you would take if you were going to run for president. And when you talk to their aides and having, you know, background meetings with them, they certainly are acting like they're running for president. But none of the top tier people have really said, yes, I am definitely running. I think that'll change in the coming weeks. I think by the end of January, there'll be a lot of declared candidates in the race. But right now, it's just kind of the dancing around, jumping into the pool stage. But there's so many of them. If You're right. If Julian Castro thinks, with all due respect, he can win the presidency, then, I mean, the list, the list <laughs> is going to be very long. You're right. Castro did declare that he was running. He's one of the few who's jumped into the ring, the former HUD secretary. Like I said before, I think a lot of Democrats feel like they have a chance to win. They think that Trump is vulnerable, especially if the economy starts to go south over the next few months. Two, Donald Trump is the first person in the history History of the United States to win the presidency, having not held elected office or military office. So that lowers the bar for entry. You know, you have mayors saying, I have more governing experience than Trump did when he became president. Why can't I run for president? That's why you have House members, mayors, people who typically would be two or three steps away from running, thinking about getting into it. I think those are the two biggest factors. And then the third one, I would say, is a lot of Democrats really do feel like their party would be destroyed and this country would be in a really bad place if Donald Trump were to win a second term. And that's why they want to run as well. There seems to be, by my count, five leading candidates for the nomination. Four of them are senators, Harris, Booker, Sanders and Warren, with Vice President Biden, also a former senator, as perhaps the top contender. What do you make of that particular shortlist at this moment in I think it's interesting, Biden and Bernie Sanders aside, I think that the Democratic Party is past the point of, could a woman be elected? Could an African-American be elected? That's so much of the 2008 and 2016 conversation was about. I think this is a party that realizes that diversity is one of the key themes in its party. And there are a lot of people in the party who say our presidential candidates need to look diverse as well. So you have among the leading candidates, multiple women, multiple African-Americans. I think that's that's worth noting. I do think early on, if you look at this cycle, if you look at previous cycles, 
the early focus is always on the people who are already established figures in Washington, right? And that's the Senate. A lot of these candidates are running for the Senate, but still, the only two senators in the last almost 100 years to be elected president are John Kennedy and Barack Obama. Not that many senators actually make it to the White House, but a lot of them always do run for the White House. I think most of the people you listed are the people to pay early attention to, but I think there's a lot of, like I said before, governors and mayors who are going to get into the race who might not be known now. But my colleague Mara Eliason always says that over the course of a campaign, especially when it lasts a year and a half in just the primary stage, it elevates some people, it diminishes others. And some people might get in this race, might strike a chord with people in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and suddenly may just appear in a way that nobody's thought about them before as as a national figure. And that's worth keeping an eye on. Of course, in such a long field, you have no idea who that person could be. Let me put you then in an impossible situation. Okay. So the key to 2020 lies, I think, in three key variables. First, minority and young voter turnout. Then continued mm-hmm. engagement with the female vote that now clearly favors Democrats. Mm-hmm. And if possible, make inroads with white men, 60% of which voted Republican during the midterms. If all of this is the key for Democrats, what kind of candidate do they need? Give me a profile. <laughs> I think I would add one other factor, if that's okay with you. Of course. I think if you look at the key to the success of the Democrats winning back control of the House of Representatives last month, it was suburban voters and high income, high education districts and a lot of women, especially who either identify as independent or even identify as Republican, who have been turned off by the Republican Party and uh, crossed the aisle this time around and voted for Democrat. That was a key reason for success. And that gets into some of the internal debate of, okay, if the party actually did have success getting some Republican votes this time around, does a super progressive firebrand turn those type of voters off? But if you try to moderate and pick off those the types of people who won the Democrats control of the House. And again, if you look, you know, for all the attention that we pay to the party going to the left nationally, which is true. If you look at the candidates who won those key districts, who flipped those 23 seats needed to take control of the House. They were a lot more moderate than the typical Democrat. So how do you split that difference? And I think that I don't have the answer for that. If I did, I guess I can make a lot of money uh, running a presidential campaign. But I think it's the mix of is there a split between the policy and kind of the identity politics type style? But I mean, I think the one thing that does cross all those barriers, right? is being an authentic and engaging and charismatic candidate, the type of candidate who can tell a personal story that gets voters excited. That's the type of thing that crosses those things and gets enough people in your camp to win. I mean, I think that was a reason why Barack Obama was able to win off so many people who didn't typically vote Democrat in 2008 to become president because he was able to just paint this compelling story that people got into. Now that you mention it, what should the party run on? Obviously, it's going to run with opposition to Trump and Trumpism and nativism as one of its main arguments. But what other things should be on the Democratic agenda? What proved to be successful in 2018? The top thing by far was health care. Talking about health care all the time, whether that was I'm for a single payer health care system, like a lot of like, like a lot increasing number of, of Democrats in Congress are for, or whether that was in more conservative districts saying maybe you didn't like Obamacare to begin with, but here's how it's benefited you. And this Republican who represents you right now voted to repeal it 10 times. That would have made your bills go up. I mean, by and large, the thing Democrats returned to over and over again was health care. And I think that you'll see presidential candidates doing the same thing. The other thing that I've heard a lot of these likely candidates say is this idea of this is a referendum on the country, like Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, others, Cory Booker. I've all heard them say a variety of, 
You know, this is a battle for the soul of America. What do you want America to be about? So I think they're going to think about how broad or narrow to make that sort of message. And also just economic progressivism, economic populism. That's one, if Sherrod Brown runs, he'll focus on. His campaign talks a lot of the idea of the dignity of work, saying we're against global trade just like Trump is. We would just do it in a smarter way, in a more worker-focused way. So I think a mix of all those things. And again, once they actually start campaigning and seeing what sticks, I think you'll see a, a few key themes emerge. Some voices have said that if the party moves left in its selection of its candidate for 2020, it will risk alienating white voters with social, cultural, even racial anxieties even further. Some other voices controversially say that the party should forget about those voters or focus on other groups. What's your take? I could see the arguments for both, right? Just walking through again, you can tell a couple of different stories for how the Democrats took back control of the House. I think a lot of if there's some key themes in, in the leaders of the party thinking about how to plot forward, I think obviously they focus on younger voters and getting them engaged. And they were able to beat typical midterm turnout levels because they got the lower likelihood voters, the younger voters excited and showing up to the polls. And that more than a lot of other things was a key reason why Democrats lost in 2016. There was just an enthusiasm gap among the younger urban voters who typically showed up for Democrats that didn't show up in 2016. So I think that's a key reason. It's probably too early in the race to see if Democrats are writing off as a whole whole blocks of voters. I think if you start doing that from the beginning, you're painting yourself into a corner pretty quickly. My late colleague Jamel Bowie recently wrote a column in which he argued the following. I'm going to quote him. Black candidates may have the strategic advantage in the Democratic primary since they can stay somewhat silent on race, Jamel says, embodying the opposition to the president's racism rather than vocalizing it and allowing them space to focus on economic messaging without triggering the cycle of polarization that Clinton experienced. What do you think? You know... I think he's a very smart writer. I'm not, I guess uh, some of the repeated things I'm saying here is I'm trying to keep as open mind as possible, right? You know, this is going to be such, I mean, think about how much has happened over the last two years. I mean, you and I could probably sit here and maybe off the top of our heads name a tenth of the major news stories that have happened. So much is going to happen over the next two years and there are going to be so many candidates running. It's hard to tell what exactly would work or not work on that front. But I, I think there is a point there. I've, I've talked to some Democrats who say that you know, an African-American candidate, and you saw that Barack Obama did this strategically pretty well, is able to not talk about topic X or topic Y as much and kind of not get skepticism from African-American voters in a way that, like, you know, a white candidate would be able to to ignore those issues and do the same thing. I interviewed Senator Sanders during the 2016 primaries here in California. I had heard him briefly mention Cuba during a Univision debate in Miami with Secretary Clinton. So I wanted to ask him about foreign policy. Specifically, I wanted to know his opinion about Venezuela, Cuba, and the state of Latin America's left. He wasn't interested at all, Scott. He ignored all my questions. It was yeah. quite astounding. So much so that, I mean, honestly, he declined to answer all my questions. Is he now more interested in the world? Are the other candidates more interested in the world? How are they changing when it comes to foreign policy? Sanders definitely is. And that's that's been a really interesting storyline over the last couple of years, watching Sanders actively decide to care about foreign policy and actively decide to put together a Sanders foreign policy. He's given a couple big picture policy speeches on that front. And to, to try and summarize his worldview, it's it's splitting the difference between the Hillary Clinton, every alliance everywhere, engagement everywhere, and the Trump America first, saying, you know, America has done a lot of bad things when it's gotten engaged around the world, but it still has a positive role to play. It just has to be more narrow and strategic. 
Bernie Sanders played a key role in that vote the other week to try and force the U.S. out of military support in Yemen. Yemen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that is something that would have been shocking to see in 2016, based on what you said before. So he's made a point to try and do that. And I think you've seen other uh, other senators as well take those steps. Elizabeth Warren, who's known much more for domestic issues, economic issues, has tried to give some big picture speeches on how she views the world. And I think you should expect these other candidates to do the same thing over the coming months. I mean, it's an important thing, even if it's not the type of policy that lights voters' hairs on fire, unless there's a crisis going on. It's something that in most election years, voters really do care about wanting to feel like they can believe that their candidate could be a credible commander in chief. One likes to think that elections are about policy, but <laughs> elections are also are also about money, right? Yeah. So, so who's winning the money game among Democrats? Beto O'Rourke proved you mentioned that how a campaign can be financed through small dollar fundraising. Who's winning the money game? Hard to say right now. I think we'll have a great picture at the end of the first quarter of next year because that's one reason why a lot of candidates want to announce early so they can do that show of force saying, here's how much money I raised. It'll be interesting to see because Beto proved that he he, he ran presidential campaign levels of fundraising running for Senate, right? Bernie Sanders has this enormous email list. Kamala Harris has this enormous email list. All of these candidates have proven they can get out there and raise money from small donors. So whoever wins, whoever raises the most, that'll be almost like an unofficial primary right there. I think there's another key decision campaigns have to make of whether or not they're going to form super PACs or be supported by super PACs. You've seen a Cory Booker super PAC start to form already, even though Cory Booker has not officially announced he's running for president. But, you know, Beto refused super PAC money, and that was something that was really popular among Democratic candidates. So there's going to be some pressure to fight with one hand tied behind your back and not take that money. So who chooses to do that and who doesn't, that'll be an early strategic and policy setting decision and would also give you some confidence in how they view their ability to raise that money on their own. Where do you stand on the question of Beto O'Rourke in general? He ran this impressive campaign in Texas and seems to be universally appealing. He speaks Spanish fluently and beautifully. He could offer a clear contrast with Trump in many ways. Is there something there or does he really have a chance? I don't know. I mean, he ran a really impressive Senate campaign, right? Coming that close with Ted Cruz. That was a race I did not actually get to go cover myself that much. NPR's got some excellent correspondents based in Texas who really took the lead on covering that story for us. Yeah, he was compelling. He got people excited in a place where they hardly ever get excited for Democrats. But I think the unanswered question is how much of that enthusiasm was just because Beto O'Rourke was making the point to show up and campaign and how much was it him himself? Because obviously a Democrat trying to win will not be anything notable in a presidential primary. Everybody's trying to win. You know, if there's other progressives out there, if there's other people going around all over the state, how much does he shine? One of the biggest questions I have going into next year, and I'll, I'll be paying close attention. O'Rourke has been called the new Obama. Kamala Harris, the senator from California, has been called the female Obama. Why is the Democratic Party looking so eagerly for the next Obama, aside from the obvious that this was a, a transformational figure, uh, won the presidency twice, everything that we know about Barack Obama? But does the party need such a figure to form a winning coalition? Well, the party definitely needs a winner and, a, and somebody who can unify people and get people excited, right? Whether or not that's the next Obama, I don't know. And I think that might be the type of thing that people like you and I talk about more than the actual candidates. I think, I mean, you saw so many elections for decades where Republicans were saying, I'm the next Ronald Reagan, I'm the next Ronald Reagan. And I don't know if that's the best way to run for president, kind of trying to fill in the blank of somebody else. I think Bill Clinton 
coming out of nowhere as this charismatic Southern governor. That I think there weren't too many parallels for him. Barack Obama coming out of nowhere as this compelling African-American candidate from Illinois. I think the best candidates are the ones who cut their own figure and aren't trying to fill in a blank. I mean, that being said, I think Obama has tried to stay off the stage as much as he can, except for campaigning in the lead up to last month's elections. But, you know, we know that he's been meeting with a lot of these likely candidates, offering advice. And I don't think he's going to endorse during the campaign, but I think he's going to be an asset for whoever wants him, especially when there's one nominee. But I think Barack Obama, one reason why he's tried to stay off the stage is he said the Democrats need to figure out their own identity going forward and not just keep relying on him. I think Obama would love it if the next Democratic nominee is not the next Obama, but is the first of whoever they are. (laughs) If you had to pick a dark horse in the Democratic field right now, who would it be? Ooh, good question. Um, I think just by the definition of the phrase, I'm interested to see which of these non-Washington candidates really breaks out first, whether that's the governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, has gotten a lot of attention. He would be in the mold of the more moderate, centrist candidate that appeals to non-Democratic voters. You know, you've had these business executives, Howard Schultz of Starbucks, Mike Bloomberg, who was the mayor of New York and, you know, an actual multi-billionaire from New York City. And there's several other mayors as well. Not one jumps out right now, but I think just in terms of that question of is it progressive aggressiveness or talking about governing centrism, I think Bullock is an interesting contrast to the key Senate candidates. So he's somebody who I'm going to try and cover in the next few months. So Beto for you is bigger than a dark horse already. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's I don't know how you define dark horse versus favorite in such a large field. I think I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. It's It's tricky. Well, yeah, I mean, he's visible enough. Okay, so last question, the mother yeah. of all questions. Okay. A year and a half from now, Scott, who, <laughs> who is the Democratic presidential candidate? Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to say something on tape and look stupid a year and a half from now because I'll probably be wrong. <laughs> this, is, this is the effect of Trump. <laughs> yeah, well, not just, yeah, it's effect of Trump. You know, I just, there's this good book that just came out by uh, Steve Kornacki that looks back on 90s politics. And one of the things that really jumped out to me because I was reading it in the run up to this is that, he marks all the prognostications from 1992 that were like 100% wrong. Like, nobody can beat George Bush. George Bush is unstoppable. There's no way Bill Clinton can win the domination. He's dead. There's no way Clinton will beat Bush. And then, you know, of course, what happens, Bill Clinton ends up winning. And you can do that for a bunch of other races, too. So the exciting thing is we've got two years to cover this. So why get ahead of ourselves? That's also the safe thing. Well, I hope to have you back in Trumpcast soon, and we'll keep updating our forecasts. I'll get more aggressive in my prognosticating the deeper it goes. Wonderful. Scott Detrow is a congressional correspondent for NPR. He also co-hosts the NPR Politics Podcast. Thank you, Scott. This has been fascinating. Hey, thanks for having me. This was fun. And that's the show for today. What did you think? Let us know on Twitter. I'm at Leon Krause, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E. And the show is always at Real Trumpcast. And before we sign off from this, our last show of 2018, I would like to ask you to sign up for Slate Plus. It's $35 for the first year. That's just under $3 per month, and it gets you all of Slate podcasts at free. And perks like discounts on our live shows. And you can see me, by the way, at our live show in Los Angeles on February 7th. Go to slate.com slash Plus. That's slate.com slash Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Maria Elena Ochoa. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Find him at, at Johnny D23 on Twitter. I'm Leon Krause. Have a great new year. Feliz Año Nuevo. Thanks again for listening to Trump.
Hello, everyone. This is President Donald Trump, the greatest president in the history of presidents, wishing you a very happy new year. And no one wishes happy new year like me. No one. No one makes people happy like me. I am the national distributor of happiness in the United States. What do I always say? You're going to be so happy. You're going to be so happy. But this year particularly, I was over in Iraq. We took a very, very long flight. That flight was significantly longer than I ever thought it would be. But we got there and so many of the soldiers, by the way, by the way, I gave the soldiers a huge pay increase. I gave each soldier $1 million. They're very happy and they should get it. They should get it. But the Democrats, the Democrats don't want to pay the soldiers. They don't want to pay them. They want them to work for free. It's really, really sad. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. But ISIS, gone, totally gone. And there's no reason for them to be in Syria. We're going to bring them home. We're going to bring them home. And Putin's going to protect Syria. And we have a great relationship with Russia. And I know Putin's going to really take care of it. And everything's going to be fantastic. And 2019 is going to be absolutely amazing. So happy new year. Let's build the wall. And if we don't, I'm going to keep the country shut down forever. Believe me, I can do it.